turn with me in your Bibles to First King eight, First Kings eighteen, First Kings chapter eighteen. And as you're turning, I want to describe kind of a phenomenon to you that I think some of you are familiar with, maybe all of you at one point or another. Many of you know what this feels like. It's the feeling of waking up one morning, for some reason, just terrified to face the day. And maybe you can't even pinpoint the exact reason. Instead of being bolstered by the knowledge that your sins have been forgiven, that you're on a certain pathway to an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his angels and with his people in new Jerusalem on a new earth in a new heaven where every tear will be wiped away. Instead of that, you think, I wonder how the Lord is out to get me today. I wonder how God is going to nail my life today. It's that feeling that God is placing emotional or physical or financial or relational landmines in front of you and you almost feel like he's enjoying it. And worse, not only do you dread what the Lord might inflict on you today, because it seems every day has had something inflicted on you, your view of God can become skewed, it can become distant. And instead of viewing him as your loving Heavenly Father, you can subtly begin to question his character as you view him more as a household dictator who's out to get you, who loves to hound you, to pester you, to pursue you. And so you lay in bed thinking it might be easier just to stay there. I mean, what can God do to you while you're in bed? I mean, you're safe there. Well, the reality is, is that the secret that no one may, but you may know is that just swinging your legs over to have your feet hit the ground and get up, to stand up, takes all the courage that you can muster. And this is real. This is happening to some of you. It has happened to some of you. And so we understand this is a reality of living in this world. And that's what I really want to talk about tonight is spiritual courage. Spiritual courage, especially when you're waiting on the Lord, when you feel as though God is just taking delight in not doing anything that you've prayed for. Taking delight in making you wait and wait and wait when you don't directly see his hand working in your life at at this moment in ways that are totally obvious to you. When, as we've said, that God seems to have gone radio silent, that you're just not hearing from him. And this is what we're talking about in our series, Strength in the Desert. We're, we're taking lessons from saints in the Bible on how to wait on the Lord. And tonight, I want to take a little bit different direction. I want to examine the man who lacked courage. He was a man who was a spiritual mouse in a time when we needed spiritual men. And his name is Obadiah. Now, Obadiah that we're speaking of, this is not the prophet Obadiah from the 6th century B.C. This is Obadiah, the court official from the 9th century B.C. And Obadiah has a lesson to us on waiting on the Lord. His lesson tonight is be brave when you don't feel brave. To be brave when you don't feel brave. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. It was a very common Hebrew name. There are 12 men in the Bible named Obadiah. So if you had everybody in the Bible standing before you and you yelled Obadiah, a lot of guys would say, yes, I'm here. It's a very common name. It's kind of just like like John or uh, other common names in our day. This Obadiah lived right during the ministry of Elijah the Tishbite, arguably the greatest prophet in Israel's history except for Moses. Obadiah was the chamberlain or the prime minister of the northern kingdom of Israel under the the kingship of the wicked king Ahab. 
He would run the king's household. He was the chief of staff. He was the chief representative of the king. He is basically the second most powerful man in Israel with one problem. He is under the thumb of a tyrant, a king whom you do not cross. And so he finds himself in this very awkward position in the highest levels of an administration that is absolutely wicked to the core. And Obadiah is right in the middle of a spiritual crisis. The northern kingdom of Israel was demonstrating her apostasy in every way possible. And the process really started long before the split of Israel into two kingdoms. But we can go all the way back. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. We can go all the way back to 1 Kings 11. And that is when the great king Solomon is led astray into idol worship. 1 Kings eleven six says, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. 1 Kings 12 tells us the story of Solomon's son and successor, Rehoboam. He can't hold the tribes of Israel together into a unified nation, and the kingdom split, with Rehoboam now ruling the southern kingdom with just two tribes left. In the north, a man by the name of Jeroboam, not Rehoboam, but Jeroboam, he becomes the king of the northern kingdom, also known as Samaria, and immediately he, in order to distinguish himself from the southern kingdom, to, to make himself distinct from those that they've split off from, he sets up the worship of golden calves, just like Israel had done at Mount Sinai 600 years earlier. Jeroboam was severely disciplined by the Lord and ultimately died in disgrace after having led Israel into idolatry and into sin. His son, Nadab, took his place and was murdered in the third year of his reign, having done the same evil as his father did. 1 Kings 15 says this. The man who murdered Nadab, a guy by the name of Baasha, he took over as king. He ruled in evil and in rebellion for 24 years before the Lord raised up the prophet Jehu to pronounce judgment on Baasha. Well, Baasha's son, Elah, he took over. But just two years in, one of his military officers, a guy by the name of Zimri, he murdered him. Zimri took the throne of Israel. And as his first act, he also murdered all of Baasha's male relatives, the entire family of Baasha and Elah. And Zimri ruled for precisely seven days. This tells you that this is a kingdom in complete chaos. The commander of Israel's army, Omri, didn't think Zimri was the rightful king and didn't like the fact that Zimri had con conspired against Elah. If you can keep all this straight, good luck with that. But Omri came after Zimri, but Zimri committed suicide seven days in before Omri could kill him. So you have this kingdom just utterly upside down. So Omri takes over now. And now the northern kingdom of Israel has a civil war. Omri prevails. He rules the whole northern kingdom. And the Bible's evaluation of Omri is telling. 1 Kings 16, 25 and 26, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. And he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that had made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So Omri was bad. But Omri had a son who would take over the throne, Ahab. And the story of King Ahab begins, unusually, with God's evaluation of Ahab. 1 Kings 16, beginning in verse 30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, 
he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab is not just slightly off track. He's just not, not just slightly on a, on a wrong course. He hates Yahweh. He has married a Canaanite who is a Baal worshiper who brings Baal worship to the forefront, builds a temple to Baal right in the kingdom of Israel. And Ahab had a prime minister, his right-hand man, who was a secret worshiper of Yahweh, who feared the true and living God, our man Obadiah. And Obadiah, like many of you, was waiting on the Lord. He was waiting for relief from spiritual oppression. He was waiting to be able to be open about his genuine faith in the Lord. But as we'll see, if Obadiah were to come visit with you in your living room and give you lessons on waiting on the Lord, he probably wouldn't tell you what he did right. I would guess that he would tell you his regrets and the faith that he wished he had demonstrated. I like Obadiah. We get a very human look into the frailties and fears of a worshiper of God. He certainly doesn't exactly come off as heroic. I I relate to Obadiah. He is a fearful, timid man. By the time we're done, I think you'll agree with me that we should picture Obadiah as having a a quavering, wimpy voice, that he was probably a hypochondriac. He was a typical, paranoid, fearful man with a bug-eyed, pessimistic outlook. He's the type of guy who says, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. I'll probably be dead next week. Make sure and take care of my family. Just, he just is the guy who sees the meadow muffins in all the meadows. He sees the worst in everything. And he's just waiting for Ahab to discover something that Obadiah had done secretly. It was a somewhat brave act, actually. And if Ahab ever found out what Obadiah did, it's lights out for Obadiah. And so, as a result, Obadiah is a mess. He's paranoid. He's fearful. He's just waiting for his certain doom. And he isn't being helped any by the prophet Elijah. Because he's going to meet up with Elijah, and Elijah is brave, and he is confrontational. And Obadiah doesn't need that. He needs other people who are timid and fearful to to huddle around with him. Elijah had confronted Ahab and decreed that there would be no rain for years until Israel repented. And almost three years would pass, and Elijah, after making Ahab furious, disappears. Now, 1 Kings 17 tells us where Elijah is. But Ahab has been hunting him and can't find him. While Obadiah is trying to keep this terrible secret about what he had done that would end his life if Ahab ever found out. And now Elijah is back. And he's coming to confront Ahab again. And he wants Obadiah to set up the meeting. And that's where our narrative begins in chapter 18. But I want to just kind of push the pause button for a moment. We've set up the scene for our encounter with Obadiah. Let's just leave him there for a second. Because the issue we're going to confront this evening is the issue of spiritual courage. And we need to take a moment. I want to build a short theology of spiritual courage for you so you can kind of filter this story through this theology. And then we'll return back to the story. What I want to do is just very quickly give you five sources of spiritual courage for us to consider. Five sources of spiritual courage. And then we're going to set that off to the side and return to it later. 
first source of spiritual courage, courage from fellow believers in Christ. Courage from fellow believers in Christ. When the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and we looked extensively at that the last time, he was being brought to Rome. He had endured humiliation. He had had months of journeying by land and by sea. He had endured a shipwreck, even a snake bite, and he needed encouragement. When he was close to Rome, some of the believers in Rome left the city and met him out in the country before he arrived. And Acts twenty-eight fifteen says, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius, Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. He needed his brothers and sisters. He needed to see those fellow believers And we need each other. We need to put our arms around each other. We need to pray with one another. We need to hold each other's hands. We need to hold each other tight and say, you can do this by God's strength. You can have courage. You can be brave. I know you don't feel brave, but you can. The Lord will help you. We need each other. No Christian ought to walk alone, especially when you're in fear. There's another source of spiritual courage, courage from the reality of our faith courage from the reality of our faith. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That our faith is is in the certain realities of Christ. Those things that we know, that we know, that we know are true from the word of God. That yes, we're away from the Lord, but he's so real, he's so active. He's very real. We, we have an invisible faith. We do not have a blind faith. Our faith is filled with knowledge and with evidence. And Christ is the greatest reality in the universe. You just haven't seen him, not yet. But he is the greatest reality. There's a third source of courage. Courage from a certain future. Courage from a certain future. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 8. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is so instructive to us. Paul is allowing himself to think and to dream about his heavenly future at home. What a beautiful word, at home with the Lord. And to be able to just close his eyes and say, what a great day that's going to be. His courage in the present withdraws from the bank of the future. And so he draws courage now from what's happening later. The fourth source of courage, courage from obedience to Christ. Courage from obedience to Christ. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're to have courage based on a desire to please the Lord, that that bolsters our faith. What can I do at this moment that is pleasing to God? That gives me courage. It is to walk by faith and not by fear, not by angst and anxiety. And there's a fifth source of spiritual courage we could consider. Courage from determined patience. Courage from determined patience. Two times, the Psalms link courage with a determination to wait patiently on the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. It's a determined patience, it's a decision. Psalm 31, 24, be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Now, these two verses have something in common. It's very interesting. 
the particular verb form on take courage, it's introspective in nature. And what this verb form means is it's the idea of looking in the mirror and saying, get it together, take courage. You can do this. Be strong. Let your heart exhibit bravery. It's an act of defying emotion and being brave anyway and doing what you don't feel like doing. So our theology of spiritual courage, courage from fellow believers in Christ, courage from reality of our faith, courage from a certain future, courage from obedience to Christ and courage from determined patience. So that's our theological foundation. Let's set that aside for a moment. And with that foundation in place, let's get back to poor old Obadiah. He's quivering in his sandals and he's just waiting for the next terrible thing to happen to him. We'll just kind of let the story unfold in front of us and, and put some mile markers here for our journey. So we'll just do three mile markers to kind of mark our time here. The first mile marker we'll just call the crisis. The crisis. And now we get into the text. Chapter 18, verse 1, the first two verses. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Many months have passed between chapter 17 and chapter 18. In fact, we're, all, we're in the third year. So it's nearly three years have gone by now since Elijah decreed there will be no rain until Israel repents. And there hadn't been a drop, nothing. Elijah has been waiting and waiting on the Lord. He has been in, in exile. He's been in hiding and watching, certainly with frustration, as a man who hates God sits on the throne of Israel. The nation was in spiritual shambles. The, the people were suffering physically. They were suffering spiritually. The drought is so bad that now, as we'll see in later verses, the animals are beginning to die. That's the entire economy dying. And as far as Elijah knew, he was basically the last Israelite left who really cared about worshiping the one true God. He's the last one who cared that the nation repent and turn back to God. Now, later on in the chapter, he's going to learn that there was a significant remnant of faithful believers left in Israel, but he didn't know that yet. There would be some who were living a hidden faith. And why is this? True Yahweh worship was now basically illegal. So true believers had to worship underground. The, the nation is completely upside down, spiritually speaking. And so there are some underground, but for now, Elijah feels like the last man standing. I mean, can you imagine that feeling of feeling as though you are the only Christian left on earth? There's an atmosphere of fear and intimidation in the nation. Evil has, has won. There's open hostility toward the law of God, open hostility toward God himself. Ahab had married the Canaanite princess Jezebel, who's saturated Israel in Baal worship. And Obadiah really epitomizes this atmosphere of fear and of tension. He's really the, the representation of what all of Israel is going through. And so the Lord commands Elijah to go offer to send rain again. And this is very, very important. What would have happened if the Lord just sent rain? What if he had done that without a public word from Elijah? Ahab and Jezebel would have stood out in the public and said, Baal, the God of rain, the God of fertility has sent rain. And so instead of that, Elijah is to go tell Ahab that rain is coming before it happens so that Yahweh alone gets the glory and gets the credit. What, what's God doing? 
he's beginning the process of winning his people back, of winning their hearts. And so he's going to tell them that I will send rain again. Now, remember I said that Obadiah was terrified that Ahab would find out this terrible secret about him, something he had done. Here it is in verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. The prophets of God were men commissioned by God to proclaim the truth, to teach the scriptures, in essence, to shepherds God, shepherd God's people because the priests were failing to do it. And so God raised up these prophets. They were Bible teachers. They were men of the word. They spent their time in the study of the word, in the proclamation of the scripture. They were devoted to proclaiming true faith in Yahweh. And Obadiah, at a time when Jezebel was murdering prophets of God all over Israel, Obadiah has saved their lives. He's hidden them in caves, and it wouldn't have been difficult to do. On the western side of the northern kingdom around Mount Carmel, there's about 2,000 caves. So Obadiah's odds of being successful are pretty high. He finds a couple of caves to to hide these guys, and he even gives them water and, and food. But was that actually the best thing to do? In the short run, it saved their lives, but ultimately Obadiah hid them because he wasn't open about his own faith in the Lord. His strategy with these guys reflected his own policy, which is stay hidden until this thing blows over. That was his policy. Obadiah is in a tough position, though. He desires to serve the Lord, and yet he must serve Ahab well. And so we see an example of this in verse 5. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. He's got, as despots often do, He's got, as the prime minister, second in command of all of Israel, he's been given something that one of the servants could have done. You have to go out, and you need to go look for water. You need to go look for pasture land. There's a thousand guys in the palace who could do this, but he will only send Obadiah. So Ahab sends him out to find a way to feed the king's animals during this worsening drought. Obadiah certainly may suspect that the king is the reason for the drought. But Ahab, and this is important for us to note, He was extremely concerned for his horses. Now, why is this? Why does that detail matter? Well, archaeology has shown that during this time in the ninth century, the king of Syria, Shalmaneser III, he had struck a bargain with Ahab to help against a common enemy, and that was the growing Assyrian Empire. Not the Syrians, but the Assyrians. So Ahab had agreed in this treaty to provide 2,000 chariots and 2,000 horses to the coalition effort to go against Assyria. And if Ahab backs out on his promise to Shalmaneser, then he's as good as betraying Shalmaneser and Ahab would now have made an enemy. Now the problem here is if there's no water and there's very little good pasture land, the horses are starting to die. And Shalmaneser's not going to believe any story about a drought. 
What, what's Ahab going to tell him? Well, there's this guy named Elijah, and he's really irritating and annoying, and he came and told me that there's not going to be any rain, and huh, lo and behold, there's no rain. And Shalmaneser is going to say, I don't think so, you're dead. And so Ahab, he's not concerned with his people. He's not concerned with their physical starvation. He's not concerned, certainly, with the spiritual state of Israel. All he's concerned about, like any tyrant, is keeping his power. That's his concern. And so here they are, out looking for pasture land to save these horses because it's the means of a treaty with a stronger nation. And now Obadiah, he's tried to live his life in two worlds. The world of serving a wicked despot and the world of faithfully serving and loving Yahweh. He has not taken a stand, and as we're going to see, he is extremely anxious about this. Listen, trying to live for the world and trying to live for the Lord simultaneously is a great way to suffer from all kinds of anxiety. You cannot do both. As a matter of fact, Elijah and Obadiah are quite the contrast. Elijah is bold and confrontational. Obadiah is just trying to make it through this national crisis with his skin intact, trying to just not make waves. Elijah lives in exile, often in the wilderness. He's willing to confront Ahab's apostasy. Obadiah, on the other hand, lives in a respected position in the king's palace. He visits daily with the king and lives in comfort. Elijah shows immediate obedience to the Lord. Obadiah wants to him and haw for a while, as we'll see. Elijah viewed Ahab as a man to be confronted. Obadiah viewed Ahab as a man to be feared and avoided. Elijah was boldly open about his faith, while Obadiah apparently gives no visible testimony of genuine faith in the Lord. Elijah was certain of God's purposes and his plan being fulfilled. Obadiah isn't quite sure, and he's hedging his bets by making sure he has a plan. Obadiah had too much vested in his relationships with unbelievers. He was too intertwined with God's enemies, and so he's trapped. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? It's actually very tempting to me as a preacher to do a, a comparative character study between Elijah and Obadiah. But it's not even fair. I mean, Elijah's going to just hammer this guy. There's not even going to be a, a contest. And, and the lesson would be, be more like Elijah and not like Obadiah. But the reason I chose Obadiah is I want to be mindful that as you examine these men, many of us might be saying, oh no, I'm Obadiah. I have spiritual fear. What do I do? And even saying that sounds like Obadiah. So there's the crisis. The drought is continuing. Ahab is concerned about his military alliances, not with his disobedience to God, Obadiah is trying to play both sides of the fence, and Elijah wants to meet with Ahab, which is going to put Obadiah in a really awkward position because his two worlds are about to meet. Now, there's the crisis. Here's a second mile marker. We'll just call it the conflict. The conflict. Elijah has been told by God to confront Ahab, and Obadiah is out on a mission for Ahab, and by God's sovereign plan, they run into each other. Verse 7 records this meeting. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? 
Obadiah has also likely felt alone. He's been trying to hide his faith. He's been trying to stay alive. I mean, he takes orders every day from literally the most wicked man on earth. Elijah, the strong and courageous and bold prophet of God, has been missing for nearly three years. Nobody knows where he is. And so Obadiah's response to seeing Elijah is very touching. It's very poignant. He falls on his face. He can't believe it. Elijah has returned. There's hope now. And Elijah gives him a command in verse 8. And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Oh, good. Something good is finally going to happen. The Lord's going to move and work. This is what I've been waiting for. That was not Obadiah's response. In fact, Obadiah immediately enters into a conflict, and the conflict is not between Obadiah and Elijah. The conflict is in the heart of Obadiah. It's with Obadiah and Obadiah. Right now, he's being confronted with the very same words spoken five centuries earlier by the great Israelite general Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Obadiah has been on the fence, and Elijah is telling them, time to pick a side. And two terrible temptations come upon Obadiah. Sinful attitudes which can so often pervade the hearts of those who are waiting on the Lord. The first terrible temptation that comes upon Obadiah we'll just call self-focus. Self-focus. His first thought is for his own safety. And he whines with this spineless sarcasm. He says in verse 9, And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? In other words, what did I ever do to you or to the Lord to send me on a suicide mission? And Obadiah gives his reason, and he exaggerates enormously. He says in verse 10, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. That's a total exaggeration. Ahab went to the, went to the Mayans. He went to the Egyptians. He went across to, to some Asian nation. He went everywhere. According to Obadiah, he's been all over the world looking for you. And he exaggerates. And they would say, and when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. In other words, Ahab would curse them and say, you are cursed. Verse 11, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Israel is spiritually dying. They're physically dying. They're in a, a spiritual and physical drought. They're without water, and they're without the living water of God's favor and God's word. And this is all Ahab's fault. Obadiah does want the same thing that Elijah wants, but he can't bring himself to have the solution to be, to have the courage to be part of the solution. He is sucker punched immediately by the temptation of self-focus, that this is only concerning him about himself. That's the first terrible temptation that comes upon him. Not only self-focus, but the reason for the self-focus, the second terrible temptation, we'll just call self-importance. Self-importance, that the skin of Obadiah is the most important character in this whole drama here. He continues his his protest. He predicts pessimistically what's going to happen as soon as Obadiah goes to take this message to Ahab. And before we read verse 12, don't look at it yet, you're cheating. If you, if you can picture this, Obadiah saying, okay, 
all right, I'm going to do this. But Elijah, you got to stay right behind me. You got to stay right behind me because I'm about to go tell Ahab that you're here and you want to meet with him. You got to stay right behind me. Here's his response in verse 12. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. In other words, God's going to take you someplace else right when I'm looking around and I'm just left with me and Ahab and I'm dead. And so he's, he's very, very scared of this. And not only does Obadiah believe that God will take Elijah away, but he's basically blaming God for his own doom, that God's just setting me up. He's just setting me up to get nailed. And now Obadiah makes his weak case of how important he is, how precious in his own eyes he is. Second half of verse 12, And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. And here's his his case for his own importance. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? So he's self-important. And at first he says, Ahab is going to kill me, even though I worship the true God. The inherent assumption here that Ahab, that Obadiah rather is making is, if I love God, then bad things should not happen to me. This isn't fair. People who love God shouldn't suffer. Don't put me in that position. Obadiah's theology is not very different than much of American evangelicalism. That his faith in God consists of how God can serve him, not how he can serve God. And then, as if to try to make his case for how faithful he is, the, the second part of his own self-importance, he says, hey, haven't you heard how, how I, how I fed, head, fed rather and, and hid the, the prophets when Jezebel went on this killing spree? I mean, wasn't that really good? Wasn't that a nice thing for me to do? Well, let's think about this for a moment. The nation is dying spiritually. They weren't, these hundred prophets now weren't doing anything to contribute to the spiritual turnaround of Israel. Instead of the prophets of God hiding, they needed to be preaching. They needed to be out in the streets shouting to repent and turn back to Yahweh. They needed to be coming out in force. Listen, when the world is hating God, the answer is not to hide all the preachers. The answer is to unleash all the preachers and to give them an audience and give them a voice. Hiding the prophets wasn't an act of bravery. I'll tell you what would have been an act of bravery was organizing secret worship services to the Lord where the hundred prophets could teach God's word to the faithful. That would have been brave. Later on in the chapter when Elijah is confronting Ahab, he says in 1 Kings 18.22, Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Where was Obadiah? Where were the other hundred men? We don't know. And yet, Obadiah is giving off this air of self-importance. I'm a true believer, so I shouldn't have to suffer. And look at this one semi-decent thing I did. So Obadiah is in conflict with himself. He's tempted by self-focus. He's tempted by self-importance. And I think this is a, a huge opportunity for us to pause and think about this. Because when you're waiting on the Lord that doesn't give you the excuse to believe that everything revolves around you, that the whole story is about you. Just because you're waiting for something from God, that doesn't mean holiness and sanctification and godliness and, and good behavior and the right treatment of those around you gets suspended. 
that somehow you get a pass on godliness. You don't get to vent your emotion. You don't get to be rude. You don't get to be ungracious. You don't get to be unkind to those around you just because you're having a hard time. As a matter of fact, this is actually the Lord's opportunity for you to fine-tune those beautiful attributes of a believer in Christ, to be gracious, to be tender-hearted, to be patient, to be loving, to be sweet, to, to demonstrate grace under fire, to stop being jealous of and angry at people who have something you don't have, to, to stop those things. As a matter of fact, and please trust me on this, the very self-focused and self-important temptations that will come upon you when you're waiting on the Lord Maybe in all likelihood, the very thing God is trying to burn out of you with this trial. So what do you do? Let it burn. Just let it burn and let the, let the, the dross go to the top of the liquid gold, which is your sanctified self. Let it burn. Poor old Obadiah is conflicted in himself. It brings us to a third mile marker of our story. We have the crisis and the conflict And the last mile marker we'll just call the courage. The courage. Obadiah is shaking in his sandals because his assessment that Ahab will kill him for knowing Elijah's whereabouts, this is very realistic. And so Obadiah concludes his whining speech to Elijah in verse 14. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he will kill me. And look how compassionately Elijah responds. He doesn't give him a big speech about being a spiritual coward. He doesn't question his faith. He doesn't tell him to stop grumbling. He just comforts him. He says in verse 15, And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. He swears an oath. As certainly as God lives, I won't desert you. I will appear to Ahab today, just like I said I would. But notice how much courage and valor Elijah encourages also. He says that he stands before God. He's saying, I'm God's representative. He's on the only truly safe side. And the message is very clear here. Whether being on God's side leads to martyrdom or whether it leads to freedom, it doesn't matter. It's the only safe place. I stand before God. Submissive obedience to the sovereign God is the only place of strength, only place of power, only place of safety. But he doesn't just stand before God. He stands before the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth. As Martin Luther transliterated the same phrase in the great Reformation hymn based on Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God, he wrote, Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle and so Elijah encourages Obadiah to have courage to have faith not that everything is going to be safe for Obadiah in the short term he didn't guarantee that but that serving God with courage as he waits for the wicked rule of a wicked king to run its course this is good this is faithful this is wise And look what Obadiah does. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. He found his courage in the Lord. He confronted his greatest fear to find that his two worlds now meet. Now, I think it's very telling 
that there is something missing from the text. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, don't you want to find out what happened to Obadiah? We never hear his name again. You never know. Because my guess, and this is only a guess, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to take away from this. See, if you're brave, everything always turns out fine. That's not the lesson. The lesson is be brave when you don't feel brave. We never find out what happened to Obadiah. He's never mentioned again. We just know that in verse 16, for that moment, he conquered his fear. And God helped him. Obadiah's act of faith and courage, being brave even when he didn't feel brave. This little drama is much bigger than just Obadiah. And that's a good lesson for us also. Your waiting on the Lord is never just about you. It's placed in the context here of the larger redemptive plan of God. I said earlier that Obadiah was waiting for relief from spiritual oppression, that he was waiting to be able to be open about his genuine faith in the Lord. But there was one more thing that Obadiah was waiting for, ultimately, as a God-fearer, as a true worshiper of Yahweh, something near and dear to his heart and to all who love the Lord. He was waiting for a righteous king in Israel. He was waiting for a godly king. He's waiting for God to show himself to Israel once again. And you know that if you looked ahead in 1 Kings 18, this exchange between Elijah and Obadiah, this private conversation, happens right before one of the most famous confrontations in all of the Bible. When Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal publicly in front of all of Israel to a spiritual duel. And it ended with God demonstrating his miraculous power and Elijah as God's representative slaughtering the prophets of Baal and showing wicked King Ahab that God was coming for him. And ultimately, God would execute justice on Ahab for his wickedness. But all of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel that I listed earlier, every single one of them have a fatal flaw. They were trying to operate outside of a specific parameter that God had already established. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that the righteous king of Israel would be descended from King David. And none of these guys in the northern kingdom were even related to David. And this righteous son of David, the glorious, true king of Israel, was the one that Obadiah was really waiting for. He is the same king that we're waiting for. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, King Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, to return to earth, not only to reign over Israel, but to reign over the world in righteousness and in holiness. See, Obadiah was serving a wicked king who hunted down the prophets of God while he was waiting for a righteous king who is the prophet of God, predicted all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. But what about Obadiah? Did he receive spiritual courage? We don't know what he did after verse 16. For all we know, Ahab did murder him. But for this moment, he did receive spiritual courage from all five sources that I listed earlier. Source number one, courage from fellow believers. Obadiah was comforted and encouraged by Elijah to to go anyway, to go in the face of his fear. He needed that word from Elijah. He never would have made a stand on his own. But Elijah came and said, you need to obey the Lord. Second, courage from reality of our faith. Elijah reminded Obadiah, I stand before God. He is real. He is not forgotten. 
How about courage from a certain future? At some level, Obadiah had to believe that Ahab doing his worst was not the end of the story. How do we know this? Because he went to tell Ahab. He wasn't gambling at this point. He had a more certainty about him, a greater certainty. And Elijah had given him the comfort that the immediate future was that Elijah was going to take the heat from Ahab. Obadiah wouldn't take the heat. Elijah would take the heat. The fourth source, courage from obedience to Christ. Now, whether Obadiah knew it or not, the comfort he received from Elijah, that Elijah stood before the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Elijah was taking orders and getting his mandates from the Son of God. The glorious second verse of A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther accurately gets even more specific. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. What's the next line? Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Obadiah didn't know the name of Christ, but he was receiving his spiritual courage from Christ. And what about courage from determined patience? Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. As Obadiah waited and waited and waited for a righteous king, for relief from spiritual oppression, a man as fearful and as timid as he was, had clearly taken courage if he was to go represent Elijah to Ahab. And in his waiting, he determined to wait on the Lord by being obedient, not by trusting in his own ability to avoid trouble. And so Obadiah received spiritual courage from the five same sources that I can access and that you can access. That we get courage from fellow believers in Christ, from the reality of our faith, from a certain future, from obedience to Christ, from determined patience. If waiting on the Lord requires you to be brave when you don't feel brave, then I would exhort you to draw courage from those five sources. They're there for you. They're there right now. I'd like to borrow my final words to you tonight from the words of a heavenly messenger sent to the prophet Daniel. As recorded in Daniel 10, beginning in verse 18, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. May the Lord speak to your heart as he gives you the strength to be brave when you don't feel brave. Our Father, we thank you for this little story just tucked into Scripture here, set into the larger scene of redemptive history, set into the larger conflict that was about to happen between Elijah and Ahab, really between you and the false god Baal. And here we have this timid mouse of a man that we will see in heaven because he did find his courage in you. He was able to let his two worlds collide and to be faithful. And while I am curious as to what happened to Obadiah in this world, I am certain of what has happened to him in eternity, that he stands before you even now. And you, you watched out for him. You helped him. 
He was the little guy. He was trapped. And you were a help and a source of comfort and courage to him. And we thank you for that. And we draw courage from that. And Lord, it's my prayer right now that this time we've had in your word, would that you would sink the nails of this knowledge deeply into our hearts, that you would do great and mighty works in our souls through this, that you would encourage the faint-hearted. Lord, I know that even in this room, there are those that tomorrow, on Monday morning, they will have that great difficulty swinging their feet over the side of the bed to get up and to have courage. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help them to remember Obadiah, the, the timid, mousy man who found his courage in you. And might, might we be encouraged in the Lord because of the strength we receive from your word this night. And we pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name.